Well, good morning. If you are with the children's ministry, there should be some teachers in the back. And for the rest of us, we are finishing up our sermon series in the book of Exodus. So if you will, turn with me to Exodus 35. We're going to be looking at six chapters. I promise you we're not going to read all of them. If you need a Bible, you can raise your hand. I think someone will bring you a Bible. Someone should bring you a Bible. Jonah's going to bring some Bibles. Exodus 35. Uh, These days, um, a lot of people are talking about freedom. Or maybe better put, they're talking about how freedom is being lost. Some cultural commentators, in light of this sort of conversation about freedom and and what sort of freedoms are being lost, are, are talking about two books that were written by authors in the 20th century. Uh, one from Orwell and the other one from Huxley. You, you guys know these. You were forced to read many of these books in high school, all right? So just, just remember this, all right? And so Orwell's book was the book 1984. And in this book, it's, it's all about how freedom is lost, but really it's about how the government and how society, right, the, the deep state, big brother, they are externally taking away freedom. So, so that's there. That, that's Orwell's kind of predictive view of, of what we were moving towards in the 20th century is a government oppression of the people by way of taking away freedoms, but it's an external taking away. But Huxley wrote another book called Brave New World. It's a little less known. But he, the theme very much is the same. It's about freedom. But he said, no, 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 it's not going to be an external threat. Actually, people are going to lose freedom, and it's all going to be eternal. It's going to be a desire for, for, for uh, pleasure, uh, a desire, a, a sort of a hedonistic desire that's going to internally make people less and less free. And, and so as the 20th century kind of closed, the question was, who is right, Orwell or Huxley? And the answer, in a sort of objective way, is they were both right. There is a freedom that's taken away externally, and there's also simultaneously a a bondage within. You can have an external chain or an internal chain. And in many ways, the book of Exodus is about both, isn't it? The first half of the book is about the external chains, right? The, the, the freedom that God's people experienced when God brought them out of slavery in Egypt and brought them in to freedom in the wilderness. But then about halfway through the book, it sort of pivots. And, and, in, and in many ways, now we're at a point where, yes, they have external freedom, but they're still not exactly free, are they? They're still have inward chains. They had the, the, the sort of tyranny of Egypt, and now they have the tyranny of sin. We saw that last week, didn't we? God's people fell prey to idolatry and sin when they began to worship a false god. And so in many ways, our story ends with a question about freedom. Freedom. And the final question comes to us, and I think there's lots of questions that come all throughout this, but the the, the last question that comes to us by way of the book of Exodus is simply this question. Is humanity, in their sin, free to dwell with God? They've been rescued, brought to God, but the question really is, In their sin, are they free to dwell with God? Can God's people approach God? And in many ways, the end of the book of Exodus flips the question. And really it's not, will humanity be able to dwell freely with God? But really, what's it going to take for God to dwell with humanity? That's the sort of cliffhanger the book of Exodus leaves us with. Will God choose to dwell with his people? 
Now, the answer to that, I'm going to spoil it up front, okay? The spoiler is in the big idea, okay? The answer is yes. Partially yes. The big idea that should be behind me is simply this. God dwells with his people. I mean, this is the big idea of the entire book, right? It is what we're calling this sermon series, right? Rescued for glory. God's people are rescued in order to experience God's glory. So that's what we're going to look at. God dwells with his people, and we're going to look at it in three acts. Act one, we have a promise. Act two, we have a response. Act three, we have the conclusion, which is we have a filling. So look in chapter 35, the promise. Verse 1, chapter 35, verse 1. Moses assembled all the congregation of the people of Israel and said to them, These are the things that the Lord has commanded you to do. Six days' work shall be done, but on the seventh day you shall have a Sabbath of solemn rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on it shall be put to death. You shall kindle no fire in all your dwelling places on the Sabbath day. We'll stop there. That's the promise. So if you remember Moses, right, starting in chapter 20, Moses is going up and down the mountain to meet with God. And now Moses is down on the mountain. He's meeting with the people. And they assemble and they say, okay, what's next? What's next, right? You remember from chapter 34, they, in chapter 32, they sin. They create this golden calf. They worship it. And God displays the greatness of his character, the goodness of his character, when he showers them with mercy and grace and he forgives them. And chapter 34 ends with God renewing the covenant. And so we open up chapter 35 and it's like, okay, so what's next, Moses? And you think, okay, well, what's next is the building of the tabernacle, right? But before we get there, we have this promise And Moses starts with this promise of the Sabbath, which is sort of odd, but but it sort of makes perfect sense. And Moses reminds God's people of this promise, and the Sabbath basically is a symbolic calendar reminder of something very, very theologically important, right? The Sabbath is a calendar reminder every week that God's people are to be in a promised relationship with God. Their fundamental relationship between God and the people, that relationship is going to be bound up in promise. And so the Sabbath was God's promise to his people that he would provide for them. He would protect them. It was a promise and a reminder that he would give them the promised land where they can find rest. So in the midst of the wilderness... In the midst of them being hungry and tired and needing comfort, God says, every week I want you to center your entire lives around around the reality that I am your rest. You can find rest in God. And so he gives them this this day, this, this reminder and this promise that in him, in God, they can find rest. And so right before God's people begin to build their home, build God's home, we're going to see that in a second, right? He says, this is the sort of relationship that we're going to, we're going to be in. It's going to be a relationship where God promises to provide, protect, and bless his people. And God's people in light are supposed to trust God and put their faith in God that he would do everything that God promised to do. Now, we don't, in one sense, keep the Sabbath, do we, right? We, in the New Testament, under the New Covenant, we don't keep the Sabbath in the same way that Israel kept the Sabbath. And yet, the Sabbath, in principle, symbolically, still is important for us. You see, the the Sabbath obligation at Sinai that we just read It's a sort of dress rehearsal for a future eternity of glad rest in God. 
when COVID started, I thought, you know, almost two years ago, I thought, this could be great, right? I'm tired. I can now rest, right? All these things that I had to do, I don't have to do them anymore. I could just rest. And then I soon realized that I was more tired and I didn't get any rest, right? I can't be alone in this, right? We started off thinking, oh, this is going to just declutter my schedule. And then we realized I'm more fatigued now than I was even before COVID. And I think the reason is that, that we look for all these, all these things that are going to give us rest, right? We, we think, okay, I'm tired emotionally, so, so maybe I just need to uh, emotionally numb out and turn on Netflix, or we just think, I'm, oh, I've got so many things in the schedule, so I just need to cut out some things and add some other things. And so we do all these sorts of things, thinking that we're going to find rest. And we do them, and then we realize, oh, they didn't really provide us rest. We're still tired. We're still sleepy. We're still exhausted. And so God in the Exodus, he reminds us, that actually, when we turn to anything other than God to provide us for ultimate rest, we're just going to be tired. Because God alone is the promise keeper of our rest. So if we want rest, if we want to enjoy rest, we need to be reminded of where rest comes from. And it ultimately comes from a divine origin. It comes from God. So in that sense, the Old Testament Sabbath is, is sort of, a, sort of a, a shadow that is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Jesus is the fulfillment of the Sabbath. He is where we can find rest. Rest not just from physical labors, but rest ultimately from our spiritual labors. This is what Jesus says to us, right? He says, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly of heart, and you can find rest for your souls. That's what Jesus says. And the point simply is this. If you are tired, if you are exhausted, if you've just worked and worked and worked, you can find rest in Jesus. If you're feeling guilty, if you're feeling shame, if you're feeling like I've just been running from Jesus, well, you can find rest in Jesus. Jesus is the fulfillment of the Sabbath. He doesn't just forgive our sins. He lets our hectic hearts slow down and find rest in him. We all go looking for lots of things to find rest, but really only Jesus is where we can find rest. If you were to read the book of Hebrews in chapter 3, it talks about this whole idea of entering rest, entering God's rest. Now, how do we enter rest, right? That, that just seems sort of abstract. God, God says, enter my rest, but how? My friend was telling me this story a couple years ago, and he, uh, he was having some headaches, and so he went into the doctor, and they ordered a CAT scan. And so he got his CAT scan, and then they gave him the results of that CAT scan, and he had to walk downstairs holding it until he could meet with a doctor to explain it. Now, what did my friend do? He did what any of us would do. He opened it up and read it. And so he's sitting there for about a half hour reading it, and he's seeing words that he doesn't exactly understand, words like anomaly, uh, words like irregular, and he's starting to freak out. He's starting to sort of panic because he's just staring at this piece of paper. Now, everything was fine. He wasn't a doctor. He couldn't interpret this, but he was trying, and as he was staring at this piece of paper, he started to worry and get anxious. He was exhausting himself because he was staring at this piece of paper. I think that's what we do often. We, we think, oh, I'm just so tired. But then we look at things. We, we, we look at things thinking that that's where we're going to get our, um, our, our rest from. And they just wear us out. Uh, in 2000, a study was done that said um, Americans 18 years and older watch on average, either watch, read, or listen to four hours of news a day. 
So that's how much time and energy people are getting to, to Twitter, social media, the news. It's in the background, listening to talk radio, all of it, four hours a day. And most news that comes to us, it's pretty bad news. Can, can we be honest? It's not like a hug. It's telling us all the bad things. And so we're staring at, thinking on, meditating on four hours of bad news. It's no wonder we're exhausted and tired and fatigued. We're spending way more time looking at the bad news of our world and far less time resting in the good news of Jesus Christ. And so what does it look like? What does it look like in the book of Hebrews when it says enter God's rest? Well, it looks like meditating on, worshiping, thinking on, reading all about Jesus Christ. Like I, I know of no other way of resting in Jesus other than filling your life, centering your life, arranging your life in a rhythmic way, in a scheduling way, just doing all these sorts of things in order to think through how do I filter everything that the world is throwing at me and then filtering it through a Christian worldview. There's so many things kind of pulling us away from a Christian worldview these days. The question is, how do we put things into our lives that remind us about who God is, that he reigns, that he has promises that he's going to fulfill, that he is good, that he's got plans for us, that we're going someplace, that that, that we have a purpose in life? All these sorts of things. How do we put them into our lives so that we can fill our hearts with them and our minds with them so that they can preoccupy our minds instead of all of the things that just exhaust us and frankly terrify us. So maybe, by way of application, maybe take a self-inventory of things in your life, things that are coming into your life and think, is this producing life and happiness? Am I more restful having brought this into my life? Or is this just tiring me more out? And if so, maybe fill it with something that actually brings you life. Like a walk or, or going on a run with someone, exercising with someone, or reading a good book or those sorts of things. So that's sort of the first, this, this promise that comes. This promise, it's the promise of the Sabbath, but it's a promise that says, hey, we're in this relationship. It's a relationship of promise, and God is the one who keeps it. We're going to see all the time, God's people are not the promise-keeping people. They're going to break God's promise over and over again, but God is the promise-keeper. He promises that he's going to bless, provide, and protect his people. Well, that's the first kind of act. It's, it's the act of God promising his people that he's going to do good to them. But then after this promise, we have a response. And this response is, if we can kind of capture it, it's the response of faithfulness, okay? God's people are faithful. And I just want to point it out, and I'm going to point out a lot of examples of their faithfulness because it doesn't happen all that often, Okay? Right? If you just read the Bible and you just underline all the time that people are faithful completely, you, you know, you're not going to underline that much. And here we have an example, a wonderful example of God's people being faithful to God. So this entire section, and it's chapter 35 all the way to the end of chapter 40, it is a description of God's people's faithfulness. And we're going to look at uh, two sort of examples or two fruits of their faithfulness. God's people give and God's people obey. That's what we're going to look at. And and you might notice that this whole section is framed with a uh, sort of description of the building of the tabernacle. It's pretty much a copy and paste of chapter 25 through 31. All right. It's a copy and paste, but in chapter 25 to 31, God gave Moses an instruction for how to build it. And then starting in our chapters, now it's the construction of the tabernacle. So go with me to verse four. So Moses said to all the congregation, this is chapter 25 or 35. Moses said to the congregation of the people of Israel, this is the thing that the Lord has commanded. 
Take from among you a contribution of the Lord, whoever is of generous heart. Let him bring the Lord's contribution, gold, silver, bronze, blue and purple and scarlet yarns, a fine twined linen, goat's hair, tanned ram skin and goat skin, acacia wood, oil for the light, spices for the anointing oil and for fragrant incense, and the onyx stones, the stones of the setting for the afad and for the breast piece. Now skip down to verse 20. Then all the congregation of the people of Israel departed from the presence of Moses, and they came, everyone whose heart stirred him, and everyone whose spirit moved him, and brought the Lord's contribution to be used for the tent of meeting, and for all its service, and for the holy garments. So they came, both men and women, all who were of willing heart, brought brooches and earrings and signet rings and armlets, all sorts of gold objects, every man dedicating an object of gold to the Lord. And everyone who possessed blue or purple or scarlet yarn of fine linen of goat's hair and tanned ramskin of, of goats brought them. Of goatskin brought them. Everyone who could make a contribution of silver or bronze brought it to the Lord's contribution. And everyone who possessed acacia wood of any use in the wor- work brought it. And every skillful woman spun with her hands, and they all brought what they had spun in blue and purple and scarlet yarn and fine twine linen. All the women whose hearts stirred them to use their skill spun the goat's hair. And the leaders brought onyx stone and stones to set for the afad and for the breastbeat and spices and oil and light and anointing. And it goes on and on and on, right? The list is outrageous. Then chapter 36. Bezalel and Ahoyleab and every craftsman in uh, whom the Lord had put skill and intelligence to whom they... Uh, to know how to do any of the construction of the sanctuary shall work in accordance with all the Lord had commanded. Verse 2. And Moses called Bezalel and Ahoyeliab and every craftsman in whose mind the Lord had put skill, everyone whose heart stirred him up to work to do work. And they received from Moses all the contribution that the people of Israel had brought for doing the work on the sanctuary. They still kept bringing him free will offerings every morning so that all the craftsmen who were doing every sort of task on the sanctuary came each from that task that he was doing and said to Moses, the people bring much more than, than enough for doing the work that the Lord has commanded us to do. So Moses gave command and word was proclaimed throughout the camp. Let no man or woman do anything more for the contribution of the sanctuary. So the people were restrained from bringing for the material they had was sufficient to do the work and more. So Moses has the blueprint from God. And now he, he sort of collects everything that he needs. Right, And so from verse 4 all the way through verse 19, we have a list that Moses says, these are the things I need in order to build the tabernacle. Moses is passing the baskets around the camp, right? And then in verse 20 through 21, we see the people's response, right? They come and they bring their contributions. But did you notice? Um, More than three times what uh, the, the sort of description of the people, right? They didn't just go, ah, I got to give. It says their hearts were stirred. See that language? Verse 22, they came both men and women, all who were, will, who were willing, whose hearts were stirred, brought brooches and earrings and signet rings, and it just the list goes on and on. Right? They were excited to give to this project. And it just keeps giving, right? They, they, they gave yarn and gold and bronze and, and jewelry and spices and oil. Just, the list goes on and on and on. And then we get to chapter 36 and something interesting happens, right? We've got these, these two men that we learned back in chapter 31. God raised up two men to be the sort of principal architects and builders of God's tabernacle. And they're collecting all of this. And finally, just so much is coming that they come to Moses and they say, Moses, enough's enough. We, we don't need any more. Did you see that? And Moses finally says, okay, stop. Stop giving. We have all that we need to build the tabernacle and more. This is amazing, right? Their hearts of the people are so stirred that they give abundantly 
outrageously, sacrificially. Which is interesting because just a few chapters earlier, they were giving their gold to a false god. And now, what are they doing? They're, they're giving their gold to God. But it, it's not just things they're giving, right? They're not just giving treasures. They're also giving their, their, their skills and their talents, right? Right? Ver, verse 26 of chapter 35. Notice the women, right? All the women whose hearts stirred them to use their skill spun the goat's hair. Then we, we learn these guys in verse 30, and in chapter 36, verse 2, we learn that they sort of trained up other men to help build the tabernacle, who had skills and whose hearts also were stirred to do this. So we've got two things going on here. We've got God's people give financially, and they give their skills. They give their treasures, and they give their talents, and they give them abundantly. So, let's talk about money. Just joking. Don't worry, I'm not going to do that, all right? Because the New Testament, actually, the New Testament doesn't interpret this whole thing to say, oh, what this means for us is that we need to give more money. I wish. The New Testament interprets it and says the bar is way higher than that. In Romans 12, verse 1, Paul writes this. He writes, I I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, right? Basically, I I appeal to you, brothers, those people, those men and women who have experienced the mercy of God to do something. Paul writes, present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. So so in the New Testament, we're not just to give our our money, our time, our talents. We're to give ourselves the totality of who we are. And that's what our offering is. That's the New Testament bar. Or if you go to 1 Peter 2, we read this. Verse 4. As you come to him, the living stone, that's Jesus, who was rejected by humans but chosen by God and precious to him, you... Also, church, are living stones, living jewelry. You are the treasures. Harkening back to the treasures the people gave. It says the church are the treasure. Offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And then if you actually go to Hebrews 3, verse 5, we read this. It says, again, reflecting on the same, uh, same text. That the author of Hebrews is reflecting on Exodus and saying, Moses was faithful as a servant in God's house, bearing witness to what would be spoken by God in the future. But Christ is faithful as the son over God's house. And we, talking about the church, are his house. So how the New Testament applies this is to say, actually, we are now the house. We are the treasure who all together make up the tabernacle. The house of God. The the, the principal builder is Jesus. But then we too are the offering. We are God's house. We are symbolically the jewels, the gold, the bronze. All put together making God's house in which he dwells in. That's the calling in the New Testament. And so in one sense, it's, it's similar. There's a similarity between the book of Exodus and the New Testament interpretation of it, but there's also a large difference. Because we too are to give to the work, but now the New Testament kind of interprets it differently and says, now the primary task is that we are to give ourselves to build up others. That's the language here. So, so we give to the work of the church because our principal objective and purpose is to build up others. So a Christian, if we just think of it, what is a Christian in, in their identity? A Christian is someone who has been forgiven, who meets God and is forgiven, transformed by God, has a new heart, and then God does something. God takes that Christian forgiven redeemed, transformed, and puts them in a community so that they now can be built up and help others be built up. 
That's what a Christian is. Remember the last thing Jesus says to the disciples? One of the last things in Matthew? He says, go, make disciples of all nations, which is basically shorthand for go, make disciples by building them up. Build them up in Christ. So what does faithfulness look like? Well, it looks like giving your lives to building others up, to being built up by others, and then also helping others be built up in Christ. Now, I'll be honest, at different seasons, what this looks like in the life of the church looks different, right? Different people in different seasons have different capacities. But the point is that whatever season you're in, you are first and foremost purposed to build one another up. That's what it means to be the church. That's what it means to be God's treasured possessions. We are, in one sense, meant to, purposed for, building one another up in Christ giving ourselves to that work. And I'd say that if you've done this, or as you're doing it, my guess is that you would say that there is nothing more glorious and rewarding than that very work, than giving yourselves to building one another up, to encouraging their faith in Christ, to pointing them to the hope of the gospel, to helping them understand God's word more, right? To remind them of the promises of God, to, to, to read books with them, to go on walks. We, we, we all have jobs, right? right? We, we all have to make living. We all have jobs. We all do various things. But fundamentally, we are not doctors who are Christians. We are not, we are not teachers who are Christians. We're not fathers or mothers or parents who are teachers. No, we are first and foremost Christians. That is our fundamental identity. And so as we do all those other things, we are to permeate those spheres, those areas, those identities with our Christian identity. And so we should, as we work, as we live, as we play, as we do all these sorts of things, we should be thinking through what does it look like to do them distinctly Christianly? Like how can I build others up in Christ as I live out these different spheres of my life. That's what faithful looks like. And that's what we see in Exodus. God's people, they are redeemed. They have just outrageously encountered God in his forgiveness. And they faithfully say, what do you want, God? Because I'm giving it all to you. And they build up the tabernacle, which for us is synonymous with, they begin to build each other up. Now, if you're like, yeah, I want to do that. I don't know how to do that. I don't know where to start. Maybe just start with saying, God, where's one, what's one person who I can this upcoming year invest in or encourage or walk with and help them be built up in Christ? So that's the first. We see their faithfulness kind of manifesting in their giving. But then there's a second. We see it actually in their obedience. So so, so starting in chapter 36 all the way to chapter 40, I'm not going to read any of it, okay? I'm just going to point some things out to you, okay? It is basically a copy and paste, although it's in a different order, but it is a copy and paste of what we read in chapters 25 through chapter 30. And so now they're building the tabernacle. But if you remember from the sermon I did uh, a few weeks ago talking about the, the instruction of the tabernacle that God gave Moses in chapters 25 through 30, you, you realize that I said that, that the, it's really purposeful what God is doing, that, that, that these elements are theologically communicating something. So, so the gold, the bronze, the intricate details, the fabric are all communicating the glory, the holiness, the majesty, the, the, the perfection and completeness of God, right? That's what the tabernacle was meant to do. It was a physical manifestation of a theological truth that God is big and don't mess with the big God, right? But here, the emphasis is not on sort of theologically communicating the completeness of God. Actually, it's the exact opposite. It's, com- it's communicating the completeness of 
their obedience, the people's obedience. I'm going to point out, but if you flip over to chapter 39, there is a phrase that comes up time and time and time and time again. And it's this phrase. The phrase is, they did X, they did this, they did that, just as the Lord commanded. So in chapter 39, this is talking about the the priestly garments, right? Let me read that language come up multiple times. We see it, just just glance at it. We see it, verse 2, verse 5, verse 7, verse 21, 26, 29, 32, 42, 43. And it's not just this priestly attire. If you go to chapter 40, right? And now this is talking about the tabernacle. Same language. Look at verse 16. Then Moses said, then Moses did according to all that the Lord commanded, so he did. And it just keeps going. Verse 19, 21, 23, 25, 26, 29. And if you don't count verse 32, which I actually think is bracketing this entire section, then that makes seven times symbolically the the sort of number of completion in the discussion of the tabernacle that God's people did everything down to the very detail according to God's word. Now, why this repetition? Why in the world is, do we see this repetition come up over and over again? Well, my teacher used to say that repetition reveals emphasis, right? Emphasis, right? It was funnier to me, right? <laughs> repetition reveals emphasis. And so here we see the emphasis is really on their faithfulness, isn't it, right? And I just want to point it out because it's sort of rare. God's people faithfully obey God, as they build the tabernacle down to the very details, they weren't messing around. They weren't like, oh, oh, maybe, maybe a window would be good here. We'll knock this. No, they didn't do anything. God's word spoke. God spoke and they listened and they obeyed. So here we see what faithfulness looks like. And the second thing that faithfulness looks like is that it looks like obeying. Now, that's a hard word, right? I mean, it's even a hard word to say, obedience. It's kind of a, I don't know. It's, it's a hard word to swallow. It's a hard word to live. It has some negative emotions. But when you think about it, obedience is at its core an act of trust, right? Uh, when, when I was in elementary school, I remember we were at my cousin's house. And my cousin was playing with his pocket knife that he just got. And he was playing with it. And I remember my dad, so my cousin's uncle, my dad said, put the pocket knife away. You're going to hurt yourself. My cousin didn't listen. And so he went, up, went upstairs. And this is just when the music video Beat It came out. And so he cranked up Michael Jackson's Beat It. And he threw the knife up, did a perfect Michael Jackson kick, and then caught the knife effortlessly. Except for he didn't catch it on the handle, caught it right on the blade. My cousin didn't believe my dad, right? My dad said, life happens with not playing around with with this knife. My dad knew his nephew. Playing around with it, he knew where this was going. But my, my cousin thought he knew better. This is how obedience works, doesn't it, right? Disobedience works with us saying to God, I don't trust you. I know your word says, but I know better than your word. Your word says this, but I don't think that's going to bring me life. Your word says these hard things, but I think that I know better than you. And so what we see here is that God's people They heard God's word. It came to them through Moses. And they said, we're going to trust you. We're going to trust that life actually will be full and filled when we look at your word and obey your word. And I think one of the reasons why they do this is that we, the story that we read last week, right? I think it makes perfect sense why they obey God. They had just royally screwed everything up, hadn't they? 
right? They should have been cut off. God should have said, all right, I'm going to start over again with you, with you, Moses. But it didn't. God renews the covenant. They experience grace and mercy and kindness and forgiveness and love. They experience God for who he is in all of those attributes. And they say, I can't believe that you'd forgive me in my sin. I can't believe that instead of wrath, you would give love and grace. And so they experience God's goodness and they turn that goodness into the worship of obeying God's word. We got to remember the divine order here, right? We got to be very careful because this is not moralism. They are already saved. First, God saves them. He rescues them. Then he gives his word to them. That's the order. Salvation, then your word, and then they turn God's word into worship and they obey. And when they obey, something wonderful happens. It always happens. This always happens downstream from obedience. And we see it in chapter 39, verse 43. Look, look there. Chapter 39, verse 43, we read, And, and Moses saw all the work, And behold, they had done it as the Lord had commanded, so they had done it. And then we read this phrase. Then Moses blessed them. Obedience always leads to blessing. Now, we need to be careful here, right? This does not mean material blessing, okay? Now, how do I even know this? Well, just look at the context. They are more poor now than they were before they started building, right? They just gave all this stuff away. So the blessing isn't that, that now they're rich. No, no, no. They're more poor now. Actually, the context of their blessing comes at the end of chapter 40, which we're going to look at in a second. The blessing is God. They get God. They get more of God. In, uh, in all of the book of Exodus, we have... Uh, six times God talking about the Sabbath, that God is going to give them rest. We see the sixth time in chapter 35, right? And if you go back and look at verse 3, it says, don't even kindle a fire. So six times God says, I am your rest. But there's a seventh time. And it's also with fire. They're not to build fire. Why? Because fire is about to come down and dwell amongst them. You see, God is going to be their rest. And so the blessing of their obedience after having been saved isn't that they get more goods, they get more of God. God's going to dwell with them. That's what faithfulness looks like. Faithfulness as a blessing looks like going deeper with God, understanding more of who he is, understanding in a deeper way what you've been saved from, understanding who he is and his promises. That's the ultimate blessing that God gives as we're faithful. It's not things. It's not treasures. It's not goods. It's ultimately God himself. Like that, that is the greatest blessing that God can give It's not things or wealth or a better job. It's himself. And that's what we're going to see. God now gives the greatest gift that he can give his people. He gives himself. Look look there in chapter 40. This is act three. This is the end of the book. Verse 34, chapter 40. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out till the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day and fire was in it by night in the sight of the house of Israel throughout all their journeys." So here at the very end, God's glory fills the tabernacle. And whenever they went on their journey to the promised land, God led them, right? That's that's the point here. God was with them. God dwelt amongst them as they made their journey to the promised land. And it's interesting because we, we started our story in the book of Exodus with God's people stranded in Egypt, wondering, God, are you with us? 
And then we end the book of Exodus, them stranded in the wilderness and no longer wondering, is God with us? God is with them. God is dwelling with his people. But did you notice, right? Verse 35, Houston, we've got a problem. Did you notice that? Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it. So we still have a problem. God had already told Moses that because of his sin, he cannot see him. He can't see God face to face and live. Moses can't in his sin, can't be in God's presence fully. Which leaves us with a cliffhanger, right? Like the book of Exodus leaves with a cliffhanger. Like, how is this possible? How can God's people dwell with God? And the answer is they can't. They can't unless God does something. Now, it's interesting. Uh, You would think that the next book in the Bible should be the book of Numbers. Because the book of Numbers kind of um, narratively picks up the story from Sinai as they make their way through the wilderness. But the next book in your Bible isn't, isn't Numbers, is it? It's Leviticus. Now, Leviticus is the book that, at least when I was in high school, I read when I wanted to fall asleep. But Leviticus is way cooler than that, right? Because what is Leviticus all about? Leviticus is all about how can unclean things be in the presence of clean How can God's unholy people be in the presence of God? And the answer largely in the book of Leviticus? Sacrifice. Sacrifice. That's the answer that Leviticus answers this question that Exodus ends with. How are God's people going to be in God's presence? The next book is going to pick it up and say, sacrifice. And so in many ways, we end our book with restoration with sort of freedom, but it's partial, isn't it, right? It's not full restoration. It's not full freedom. And so once again, the book of Exodus, like it did time and time again, it's why the authors of Hebrew and so many other places take all these themes in Exodus and say, all those themes are just shadows of a greater Exodus, of greater glory. The glory that was with them in the tabernacle would then one day fill the temple when Solomon built it. But do you know the last time we see glory? It's in the book of Revelation, chapter 21, right? Exodus ends with glory, but the entire canon of Scripture ends with glory. Chapter 21, verse 2. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from heaven, from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. God himself will dwell with them as their God. Three times God will dwell with his. God's glory is coming down. Three times God says, I will dwell with them. And it says there's going to be no mourning, crying, no pain. The former things have passed away. Now, compare and contrast. Notice the difference. Did you see the language? In the Exodus, the language of glory filling, the language is the tabernacle, right? It's a house. But in Revelation, the principal metaphor is no longer house. It's husband-wife. Did you notice that? Verse 2, a bride adorned for her husband. That's the image now which is symbolically communicating something that Moses could never have dreamed of. An intimacy that Moses never dreamed of. What the author of of Revelation is saying, what John is saying, is that what Moses could not conceive of, which is actually being close, having unfettered access to glory as a husband does with a wife, that's going to be a reality one day. Right? Glory was veiled always. But one day when new creation bursts forth, we will no longer need a veil. We're going to be in God's glory and we won't need to be afraid or fearful or have a veil. We will just be in his presence. Now, how in the world is that possible? How can God's glory be with sinful man? Like, How do you bridge Revelation 21 with Exodus 40? 
Phil read it earlier. It's John 1, isn't it? It's John 1. It's Jesus. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory of the only Son from the Father. Now, what would this glory do? How would this glory reign in the midst of his people? How would this glory dwell? Well, he wouldn't just dwell in the incarnation. That's Christmas. He wouldn't just dwell. But that glory dwelling in humanity, God and man together, had a purpose. He was marching towards Jerusalem, right? Christmas in Bethlehem starts, but it ends in Calvary when glory is revealed as God himself sent his son to die for sins. And what happens when Christ dies? A veil is torn, ripped top to bottom, signaling that now God's people can be in God's presence. Sinful man can be in God's presence all because God the Son took their sin for them. So in the Exodus, the veil guarding the Holy of Holies, it had two cherubim. But in Jesus' death, it's removed. And now we can have access to God. Impossible in Moses' day. A dream in Moses' day. Just something he yearned for. Now through Jesus Christ, we now have. But again, it's partial. We still have sin and weakness. And so we too are still waiting the consummation of glory when we will see his face, when we will see his face and see it perfectly, eternally. So, Let me ask this question and we're done. Are you free to dwell with God? Is humanity free to dwell with God? Yes, but only through Jesus Christ. That is the only way man can dwell with God through the glory of the cross.